a Singular Discoveries podcast. In the early part of the 19th century, an extraordinary young woman embarked on a gender-swapping, multi-identity crime spree. From Singular Discoveries, this is The Female Horse Thief. In Baltimore in 1838, a youth named George Wilson was arrested for stealing a horse. Wilson rode into the city's livestock marketplace on a frosty Saturday morning, February 17th, on a well-groomed and well-fed steed. The young stranger was neatly dressed in a fustian frock coat, a velvet vest, blue pantaloons and a fur cap. As later reported in the Baltimore Sun, a crowd quickly gathered around the horse and its rider, quote, some admiring the former and others scrutinising the latter. Several of the horse traders and grooms sneered at the comely youth's supposed effeminate appearance, with beardless chin and flowing ringlets, and it was considered that this was the fashion of a modern fop. Wilson announced that the horse was for sale and quickly accepted an offer of $25. This represented a bargain for knowledgeable traders who recognised that it was worth at least $75. However, as the purchaser was about to hand over his payment, another party arrived on the scene and breathlessly demanded that the sale was stopped. The new arrival identified himself as Mr Magnus from Bel Air, Harford County, around 20 miles away. He said the horse belonged to him and had been stolen from his property at 2am that morning. Wilson, unable to dispute Magnus's claim, was apprehended by Officer Smith of the Baltimore Watchman. The prisoner was swiftly taken before a judge, Justice Keyes, and was found guilty of horse theft and committed to the Maryland Penitentiary for two years' hard labour. Wilson was placed among the male population in the east wing of the jail until Mr Magnus mentioned to the prison warden, Joseph Owens, that the footprints left around his stable at the time of the theft appeared to be those of a woman. Warden Owens ordered that Wilson be subject to a personal examination by the prison matrons. The examination revealed to the satisfaction of the matrons that Wilson was, quote, a bona fide woman. The thief was stripped of her frock coat and pantaloons and was clothed in the proper garments of her sex. She was removed to the jail's female quarters. Prisoner number 3133 was recorded in the penitentiary ledger as George Wilson, a female. She refused to reveal her true name. Her crime was recorded as stealing horses. According to the ledger held in the Maryland State Archives, she was from Yorkshire, England. She was 22 years old and 5 feet 3 inches in height, with fair skin, black hair and black eyes. She had no occupation and her residence was given as nowhere. For the press, the emergence of George Wilson was both enthralling and outrageous. This was the Baltimore Gazette. This female is certainly a very extraordinary individual, but she is silent in almost every particular in relation to herself. She did not reveal her wealthy background or her criminal past, or that she had been shipwrecked while on a transatlantic quest to find her exiled lover. All of that would come later, but for now she was simply the female horse thief, made notorious by the press in Baltimore and beyond. Act 1. 
George Wilson. Horse theft was common in the 1830s, but female horse thieves were not. Horses were an essential and valuable commodity as an increasing number of pioneers and settlers pushed for the American West. Individuals and their communities relied on them for transport, agriculture and cattle drives. Losing a horse was a hard-felt calamity, and stealing a horse was a potentially lucrative undertaking. Victims of theft placed notices in newspapers seeking the recovery of their animals, and specialist horse theft detective agencies tracked thieves across the expanding country. This notice was placed by James Druffen of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Horse stolen. Of dun color with a black mane and tail, with a speck in his right eye, occasioned by the blow of a switch. He is about six years of age. I will give a reward of $10 for the recovery of the horse and the apprehension of the thief. Another victim, Henry Easterling of Bennettsville, South Carolina, offered $50 for his stolen bay horse and its thief, a suspicious-looking character who wore a large-brimmed black hat, smoked a finely crafted imported pipe, and, quote, might be judged by some to be a Frenchman. Organisations such as the Society in Dedham for Apprehending Horse Thieves and the Norton Detecting Society for the Purpose of Detecting Horse Thieves and Recovering Horses, both in Massachusetts, attempted to crack down on the scourge. A National Horse Thief Detective Association was formed in the 1840s in Indiana and would expand to encompass 300 chapters across the country. It was difficult for women to steal horses in the 1830s because it was difficult for women to ride them. The modest fashion of the day was for voluminous floor-length garments crafted from heavy fabrics, which made it impractical to straddle a horse. A riding habit, which usually consisted of a tailored coat and long draped skirt, was hardly liberating. In any case, it was considered entirely unbecoming for a woman to straddle, and instead, she would be expected to ride side saddle. Riding aside rather than astride, in a cumbersome dress, was a precarious position for a high-speed abscondment. If a woman wanted to steal a horse, it made sense to wear trousers. To succeed as a horse thief, a woman needed to dress like a man, an outrageous proposition for the time. The Baltimore Sun blamed the shocking emergence of a female horse thief on the influence of androgynous, young exquisites who were blurring the lines between the sexes. You see from this case the effects of your attempts to unsex yourselves. Do therefore, good sweet fellows, leave perfume to the muskrat, cease mincing your steps, shear off your unlovely love locks, and we shall no more be astonished by a woman turning horse thief and riding like a jockey twenty-one miles upon a cold, frosty morning. For George Wilson, disguising her true identity might also have been an effort to escape punishment for previous crimes across the East Coast and over the Atlantic. In England, in the early 1800s, the crime of horse theft was punishable by death. The country's unforgiving bloody code of crime and punishment imposed the death penalty for more than 200 offences, including the theft of goods worth more than five shillings, equivalent to around £25 or $32 in 2023. Between the years 1800 and 1829, 159 people were hanged across England and Wales for horse theft. It would soon emerge that Wilson had fled from Yorkshire on a stolen horse and was likely being pursued with a large reward offered for her return to England. Horse theft was not a capital offence in America. However, there was always the possibility that a horse thief might be shot or hanged by vigilante groups 
or by horse theft detective agencies, where the distinction between the two was blurred. But horse thieves were subject to severe punishments and would go to great lengths to disguise their identities, evade capture and avoid extended sentences in brutal prisons. For now, Wilson sat in the original Maryland penitentiary, an imposing three-storey brick and stone building with a domed tower built above the east shore of the Jones Falls River. It was described in the New and Complete American Encyclopedia of 1806, shortly after its erection as, quote, a very handsome jail, which for its conveniency and healthiness is hardly exceeded by any in the Union. Edgar Allan Poe claimed to have been imprisoned for debt in the jail in the 1830s, although records suggest this was not true, unless, like George Wilson, he was held under an assumed name. At the time of Wilson's incarceration, the jail housed 375 prisoners, including 61 women. According to the director's report for 1838, Wilson was the only white woman admitted to the prison during that year, alongside 18 women of colour. Those women of colour would likely have been first-time offenders, as the report states that free people of colour convicted of second offences were sold into slavery. All prisoners were subject to hard labour and were expected to work every day, except Sundays and Christmas. The female prisoners' jobs included sewing, knitting, washing, binding shoes, nursing the sick and making soap. Items produced by the women were shipped out on covered wagons and steamboats and sold across the state and beyond. One dry goods store in Alexandria, Virginia, advertised linen handkerchiefs, woven blankets and superior Maryland penitentiary plaids for 12 and a half cents each. George Wilson's allocated job was cotton spinning, twisting fibres into yarn, but newspapers reported that she refused to work. She, of course, knows nothing of women's work. She can handle a needle with no further dexterity than will enable her to sew a button on her pantaloons. Prison rules dictated that any prisoners who refused to work would be punished with the lash. The warden was permitted under state law to give up to 13 lashes in punishment, plus 10 days solitary confinement on bread and water. Wilson's determined refusal to work was a source of great anguish for Warden Owens, who was reluctant to inflict such a brutal punishment and attempted to convince her to comply using more sympathetic methods. But, the Gazette reported, he could not allow insubordination. In the face of continued defiance, he had no option but to apply the punishment that the institution's rules demanded. Wilson was repeatedly lashed across her bare back, but she refused to relent. No punishment which has yet been inflicted, or kind persuasion that has been offered, can move her from her fixed resolution not to work while imprisoned. Under the severest punishment, she shows not the slightest sign of anger or emotion, and will strip to receive the lash with as much apparent unconcern as though she was going to bed. Nor does she cringe with the stroke. Who this extraordinary female is, and what could be the motive for throwing aside the habiliments of her sex, remains a mystery. Wilson's fierce resolve was echoed in her determination to conceal her identity, but her story attracted the interest of several, quote, Englishmen of rank, who began to visit the jail. It was considered highly probable that some of these gentlemen knew her true identity. When visited by one particular English nobleman, Wilson threw herself to the ground and covered her face so she couldn't be recognised, and perhaps so her secrets could not be revealed. Gradually, as news of the female horse thief spread, clues to her past began to emerge. Reports suggested she had first surfaced in New York three or four years earlier, having sailed from Greenock, Scotland, 
disguised as a male sailor and calling herself David Bruce. She was said to have at least one previous conviction for horse theft and had already spent time in prison. The revelation that Wilson might be a repeat offender fueled press outrage. She is a singular and hardened creature, utterly setting at naught all the regulations of law and following the bent of her warped disposition, regardless of her smiles or frowns for the whole world. Still, though, her real identity remained unknown. What had she given up her identity to escape? Perhaps more would be revealed if it was true that she had, quote, intimated her intention of having her life written out and published. Until then, her life story would be told by other parties, not all of them reliable narrators. While the female horse thief sat silently in her cell in the Maryland penitentiary, her legend grew at the pace of a four-beat gallop. The circumstance of a female being now confined within the walls of the Maryland penitentiary for the offense of horse-stealing, committed while she was in the garb of a man, brings to my mind a circumstance related to me by an English gentleman, which may throw some light upon the history of the extraordinary individual calling herself George Wilson. This was a correspondent for the Baltimore Sun, who gave his name as Peter Paragraph, a nom de plume that appeared regularly in the newspaper and was taken from the comedic plays of the British dramatist Samuel Foote. Although his true identity is not recorded, it seems Paragraph was a member of the secretive Baltimore literary circle known as the Delphian Club. The Delphians met every Saturday evening over bread, cheese and beer at an eccentric little iconic columned dwelling known as the Tusculum, a short way down the Jones Falls River from the Maryland Penitentiary. Known club members included Francis Scott Key, writer of the lyrics for the Star-Spangled Banner, John Neal, editor of the club's literary magazine The Portico, and John Pierpont, poet, theologian and grandfather of financier J.P. Morgan. But no one used their real names at the Tusculum. Members were always to address each other using clubicular pseudonyms, such as Quizifer Wugs, Baron Brobdignag and Stoffel von Plump, or else were penalised with a fine. The gentleman known as Peter Paragraph is recorded in the club minutes as one of the Delphian club's most frequent visitors. Paragraph's account was published in The Sun in March 1838, a little over three weeks after George Wilson had been committed to the penitentiary. The story, told by one alias about another, was extraordinary. Still, The Sun believed Paragraph made out a, quote, pretty good case for Wilson's true identity, and although it was somewhat lengthy saw fit to print his account in full across its front page. According to Paragraph, the individual known as George Wilson was the daughter of a gentleman named Tom Bruce, a wealthy horse trader from the West Riding of Yorkshire, a bygone district in northern England that encompassed bucolic rural landscapes and the major cities of York, Sheffield and Leeds. Bruce was a widower who doted upon his only child and often took her to horse fairs, auctions and races. The daughter's name was Charlotte. Act 2. Charlotte Bruce. Tom Bruce was seldom seen without the chubby face of his daughter, smiling by his side. 
Thus nurtured among jockeys and educated in the stable, young Charlotte soon acquired tastes and habits very unsuitable for one of her sex. By her own request, she was clothed in male attire, and she had ridden several races and won some hotly contested heats. Her only playmates were the stable boys, one of whom was her avowed favorite. Jack Wilson was a cute Yorkshire lad, her beau ideal of perfection, a stout, well-built fellow, and an accomplished jockey. When Charlotte was 17, her father purchased a country estate and decided his daughter, the estate's young heiress, required some polishing of her manners, which had become, quote, somewhat rough. So her father sent her to a fashionable boarding school, where she was placed under the supervision of a French governess. Miss Charlotte was here entirely out of her element and completely astounded the young ladies with her knowledge of the slang dictionary. She shocked all sense of propriety by leaping on an old coach horse and riding barebacked in manly fashion to the neighboring races, where she earned her expulsion from the school by selling the horse and betting the proceeds. She now returned to her father's house, where she renewed her intimacy with Jack Wilson. The father, though he admired Wilson as a jockey, did not approve of him as a son-in-law, and as his daughter was now nearly 18 years of age, and often attired in the close-fitting dress of a jockey, he thought it prudent to remove the object of her affections and thus prevent any disagreeable accidents. Jack was sent to North America, possibly Canada, to look after a team of hunting horses Bruce had sold to some Yankee Nimrods and was never to return. However, according to Tom Bruce himself, the stable door was locked after the horse had been stolen. Charlotte was pregnant. A few months later she made her father a grandfather and, as a single mother with a baby born out of wedlock, made herself something of a pariah in puritanical Georgian-era English society. Charlotte's father was furious. His rage was unbounded, and he punished his child by inflicting upon her the most severe personal chastisement. Curiously, Paragraph's story never again mentions Charlotte's baby, and it's unknown if the baby survived or perhaps was taken into the care of another party. Infant mortality rates were high, and illegitimate children born to unmarried mothers could be placed with relatives or in orphanages to protect both mother and child from discrimination. Certainly the baby does not seem to have remained in Charlotte's care. According to Paragraph, Charlotte focused her attention on the loss of her lover Jack, and she was determined to get him back. One day, while her father was at a fox hunt, Charlotte put on his best suit, stole his fastest horse and rode to the nearest seaport, perhaps Hull or Liverpool. She sold the horse at the port, and still disguised as a man, bought a ticket for passage on the next ship. Tom Bruce pursued his daughter to the port but was too late and was unable to ascertain the name of the ship or its destination. That destination was not America. According to Paragraph, Charlotte was totally ignorant of geography and the vessel she had boarded was bound for the Mediterranean island of Malta. It was an almost fatal mistake. A few days later, the crew of a British Navy cruiser encountered a wrecked ship drifting off the coast of Spain. It appeared to be entirely abandoned, but on boarding, the apparently lifeless body of a youth was found lashed to the stumps of the mast. He was carefully removed and placed under the surgeon's care, who, in employing the necessary means of resuscitation, discovered that the rescued person was a female. Life was with difficulty restored, and on revival she was furnished with proper clothing from the wardrobe of the captain's wife, but she evaded answering all questions as to her name and the circumstances that placed her in the extraordinary situation in which she was found. The cruiser returned to England, to Portsmouth, 
and the young woman was provided with lodgings at an inn. When news of the shipwreck reached Tom Bruce, he realised from the description of the survivor that she must be his daughter. He raced on his two-horse carriage to Portsmouth, a 275-mile journey, and reached the inn just as Charlotte was preparing to leave for London. She quietly agreed to return home with her father and sat on his carriage while he went inside the inn to settle the bill. As soon as he was out of sight, Charlotte grabbed the reins, stirred the horses and raced away, leaving the inn's hostlers and grooms, and her father, transfixed with amazement. Once he recovered his senses, Tom Bruce traced his daughter to London, where he found she had sold the horses and carriage and had shipped as a cabin boy to Greenock, Scotland. He followed her there, and was told a youth answering her description had sailed on a brig bound for New York. This was the last he heard of his daughter, and though several years have elapsed since then, he still continues his search of her, and offers the reward of £2,000 to whoever will induce her to return home. That's a reward equivalent to more than a quarter of a million dollars in 2023. By Peter Paragraph's admission, his story was an imperfect sketch. Several details the origin in Yorkshire, the names Bruce and Wilson, the arrival from Greenock, matched fragments that had previously been reported. But the story was, and remains, difficult to fact-check. National civil records were not kept in England until 1837, after Charlotte had supposedly sailed to America. Earlier parish records are incomplete, and no suitable match can be found for Charlotte Bruce, daughter of Tom Bruce, in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Shipwrecks were common, and were recorded almost daily in newspapers. But despite it being much talked of at the time, Charlotte's shipwreck and survival does not seem to have been reported. Neither Charlotte Bruce nor David Bruce can be found in available US immigration records from the time. It seems likely that at least some of the details in Paragraph's second-hand tale are incorrect, and it's possible that Paragraph or his English source got the names wrong. The Baltimore Sun was convinced the story was true although the burgeoning penny press often placed the value of a good yarn above editorial accuracy. Tales of romance, crime and adventure were crammed into their plate-set columns and churned through their steam-powered printing presses. Charlotte Bruce arrived in America at around the same time as the penny press, and her remarkable story was particularly ink-worthy. Inspired by British publications such as the Penny Magazine, the first popular American penny paper was the New York Sun, founded by publisher Benjamin Day in 1833. Most newspapers cost six cents, which Day realised was too expensive for the working classes. He reckoned a one-cent paper could find a mass audience, particularly if it focused on stories that could excite or reflect the lives of the average reader. His New York Sun, sold on street corners by America's first newsboys, was an instant success and inspired multiple similar publications across the East Coast, including The Baltimore Sun, launched in 1837, the year before George Wilson was arrested at the marketplace. Several penny papers outside Maryland republished the Charlotte Bruce story, indicating its popular appeal and establishing Peter Paragraph as a popular writer. The Baltimore Sun gave Paragraph a regular column titled Notes and Annotations About Town, in which he covered issues such as poverty, alcoholism and money scams designed to fleece the poor. In writing for the Penny Press, Paragraph might not have become as well regarded as some of his Delphian club peers, but he was likely more widely read. The broad reach of the Penny Press allowed unreliable narratives to become accepted as fact, 
None of the papers that republished the Charlotte Bruce story, from Ohio to the Mississippi, sought to verify it. It might be tempting to dismiss Paragraph's story as wholly unreliable and accuse the papers that printed it of myth-making. But the extraordinary story can be shown to be at least partially true. After her arrival in America, it is possible, thanks to the attention of the penny press, to locate the female horse thief and follow her crooked trail. In the next episode of Singular Discoveries, the tale of the female horse thief continues. A young English girl, about 18 years of age, was arrested a few days since and committed to jail. Since I have been doomed to experience nearly one year's confinement within the gloomy and damp walls of a prison, I feel no longer unwilling to disclose to the world my real name. To receive new episodes for free, just follow Singular Discoveries on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to binge listen the entire season ad-free right now, just go to singulardiscoveries.com. The Female Horse Thief was written and produced by Paul Brown, based on his ebook of the same name. You can find more of his writing at stuffbypaulbrown.com. Singular Discoveries.com 